theyeshiva.net. Good morning. This is Shab- uh, Parshas Tazriya and Mitzayra, Tavshin Ayin Gimel. And we're going to explore today one of the themes in the first mimer of Lakuti Torah by the Baalatanya, by the Alter Rebbe, the Baalatanya of Ashulchan Aruch and his Lakuti Torah, Parshas Tazriya. So the first mimer is very short but very potent and profound. And we're going to explore, Bezer Hashem, one of the themes that the Alter Rebbe teaches in this discourse in the Kutit Torah Parshas Tazriya. The opening of Parshas Tazriya is Isha ki Tazriya v'yolda zocher. And goes on to discuss laws connected to childbirth, including the mitzvah of the bris on the eighth day for a male boy. But the opening words are, Hashem tells Moshe, speak to the children of Israel. If a woman conceives and gives birth to a male, then there is a tumor for seven days, like the nida. On the eighth day is the bris. And then it talks about 33 days. And then talks about the birth of a female. And the carbonus. And so on and so forth. Now, the opening words, Isha ki Sazriya v'yalda zacher, the Chazal saw justifiably as superfluous. Obviously, to give birth, there has to be conception. Why does the Torah have to mention it? It could say, Isha ki yalda zacher, when she gives birth to a male, when she gives birth to a female. So there's a famous Maimer Chazal on this. The Gemara says, a Masech de Brachis, a Masech de Nida, Isha mazras t'chila, yeledes zacher. The sages say that when the woman generates the flow first, the result is that she conceives and gives birth to a male child. And the other way, when when the man generates his seed first, he initiates the process, then the result is the conception and ultimate birth of a female child. In fact, this, parenthetically, the statement of Chazal has been discussed over many generations, especially our generation, from a biological and scientific point of view, what exactly it means. The chromosomes, the Y chromosome, the X chromosome, and how it's connected to the process of conception and arousal, etc. It's a fascinating, it's a fascinating statement of Chazal, and they learn it out from this pasuk. Isha ki sazria v'yolda zacher. Doesn't just say when a woman gives birth to a male. When the woman conceives and gives birth to the male, in other words, for there to be a male, it has to begin with isha ki sazria, with the woman's initiation of the seed of the zera. And uh, the other way, it's when the ish starts, when it starts with the male, then it's a yeladis nakeva. Tzemach tzedek. Did not want to be. Ah? The woman doesn't have a zera, she has a baby. I know. I know, I know she doesn't have, but that's the point. Sazriya doesn't mean. Sazriya doesn't mean necessarily the word seed. 
Some some flow, something begins with the woman. She begins one of the processes. She generates the flow, and then the result is a male. And if it's the other way, it's Nekeva. The Tzemach Tzedek did not want to become a Rebbe. After his father-in-law passed away, the Mittler Rebbe, he did not want to become a Rebbe. Especially that his uncle was still alive. The Alter Rebbe had a son. Reb Chaim Avram, who was still alive. The Rebbe had three sons. The Mittler Rebbe, whose name was Rabbeinu Doivber, Reb Chaim Avram, and Reb Moshe. So Reb Moshe passed away. Reb Moshe wasn't around. He died a later. But Reb Chaim Avram was still alive. So his uncle was alive. The Tzemach was the Mittler Rebbe's nephew. His sister, Dwayda Leah, was his mother. Plus, he was his son-in-law. He married his uncle's daughter. He married his first cousin. His name was his name was Chayimushka. So he didn't want to become a rebbe. So one of the older chassidim, the Peretzchein, was his name from the Chain family. Came to him and he said, "Ish mazriat chila yeladis nekeva." Thus is thy mama from the altar rebbe. And Isha mazras chila yeladis zacher. Thus is Eich. When he was, that Tzemach was saying that he's not a direct, he's a son-in-law of the Mittler Rebbe, and he's a grandchild of the Alter Rebbe through his mother. So it's not Ben Achaben. So the Peretz told him, Ish Mazriat Chila, the Alter Rebbe, Yeledes Nekeva, your mother, Rebbe Tzendvet Aleya, Ish Mazras Chila, Yeledes Zachar, is you? And the Tzemach accepted it. It was, it had a very profound impact on him in demonstrating the connection, because apparently there's a relationship here. So the Alter Rebbe begins the Maim and he says, Vizepeli. It's a very strange observation. The you would think, if the woman is more excited, if the woman generates the process, so then the product should be more femininity, not more masculinity. Right? You let this Nekeva. It's the other way around. If the man is, so to speak, more inspired, or however you want to define the mechanism, so then the product should be more maleness, more masculinity. But Chazal say the exact opposite. If it's the Isha who initiates, then the product is the male. The result is Zohar. And if it's the Ish, then it's Yeladis Nekev. What's Pshat? So first the Alter Rebbe brings an interpretation from philosophers. He says, Ha-philosophim, that's his words. The philosophers gave a, uh, what you might call a technical interpretation. And they say that it's as follows. There's a concept called Ilah Gavar. That which is in the top prevails. So he says, the philosophers say, if Isha Mazras Tchila, if the woman generates her flow first, her Hisairus. Her flow, what's called in Kabbalah, Mayan Nukvin, the feminine waters, which is a term for the, for the orgasmic flow from the feminine side. So they say the seed of the male comes last. So Ilah Gavar, so that which is on the top prevails, and therefore the baby is a boy. But if it's the other way around, if he generates his seed first, so then the female flow is on the top. So therefore that prevails. That's what the philosophers say, and Al-Tarebbe quotes them. 
And he says that it's very difficult and um, unsettling interpretation because according to this, it doesn't mean Isha Mazrast Chila Yeladizacha. It means since Isha Mazrast Chila. So the male comes second on top. But what Chazal are saying is that because Isha Mazrast Chila, it's because of her generating the process and the flow. That's why Yeladizacha. According to them, it's just a technical thing. It's not because Isha Mazrast Chila, it's because he comes second. Or in the other way, she comes second. Another, another proof, he says, is when it comes to Dina, Dina is identified in Chumash as Bas Yaakov. The Shvatim are identified as Bnei Leia. They both had the same father and mother. Why is Dina associated with her father in Bereshus and the boys with her mother? So the Medrash Rabbah and Chazal say, the reason is because Isha Mazras Tchila Yeledes Zachar. Ish Mazriya Tchila Yeledes Nekeva. So Dina was a product from Yaakov's initiation, and the boys were a product of Leah's initiation. So what do we see from here? If the philosophers were correct, that the entire relationship is simply that the male comes second or the female comes second, there's no reason to associate Dina with Yaakov anymore with Leah. Then with Leah, we see from here that what Chazal meant was quite meticulous, precise. That it's because of the woman who generated the initial flow that the result is the male. This is very strange because one would ask a question and that is, one will ask the question and that is, it should have been the other way. If anything, more femininity the result should be more femininity, more masculinity. The result should be more masculinity. Why is it the opposite? So here the Alter Rebbe gives... Ah? It's the form of action. So here the Alter Rebbe enters into a mystical realm exploring the forces of masculinity and femininity and the relationships. But really, in his explanation, which is obviously a mimer that employs classic Kabbalistic and Hasidic phraseology and terminology, really captures a fundamental theme in relationships, including in marriage, and presents a blueprint for a very sophisticated understanding of the mechanisms for a successful and meaningful relationship. First, let's employ the terms that the Alter Rebbe uses, and then we will try to demythologize the abstractions. He says that in Kabbalah, maleness is associated with the attribute of chesed. Femaleness is associated with the attribute of strength of Gvura. That is why the Pasik says Zohar Chazdoi Yisrael. Zohar means he remembers, but it also is connected with the word Zohar, male. Zohar Chazda. The Gemara says Dina de Malchusa Dina. Malchus is femininity and it's associated with Din. Dina de Malchusa Dina. 
For there to be a child, the Alter Rebbe says we need a contribution from both. The Gemara explains in Masech Nida, there's what the male contributes, there's what the female contributes, what we call today the egg, the seed. And it's the marriage of the two forces that creates a conception, fertilization, and ultimately development and birth of a fetus after nine months. So he says, It's strange. How do their two forces unite? Chesed and Gvura are paradoxical. Water extinguishes fire. Just like fire evaporates water. You cannot have fire and water coexisting. Because when fire and water coexist, there is two opposites trying to live together and they can't. One must overpower the other. Either the water gets rid of the flames, it extinguishes the fire, or the fire dries up and nullifies the water. How do we cook things? We have to have a pot. The pot makes shalom between the fire and the water. And the, way, the reason the pot makes shalom is because the pot doesn't allow for contact. <laughs> the pot makes sure that the fire, but if you'll take the water and put it on the stove directly, you'll pour the water onto the stove, onto the fire, and then you'll put your, your, uh, your dish, into, your food into it, you're not going to have a dish. You'll have a churban in the kitchen. You need a pot. The pot keeps the water separated from the fire. The metal, whatever type of pot you're using, gets warmed up from the fire and it heats the water. But it's with a partition, it's with a hefsek. Fregdal Tereb. How can the forces of maleness and femaleness, which must combine in order to create a fetus, they must unite directly and intimately when it's two opposites, chesed and gvur. What's his answer? His answer is that the ten spheroids, the ten faculties of the soul, and the ten faculties of Hashem, each one encompass all the other ones. We're now counting spheroids, so we know there is chesed and gvura. But it's not as black and white as that. There is gvura shebe chesed, and there is chesed shebe gvura. There is chesed shebe tiferes, and then there is Tiferes Shabbat Tiferes. There is Chesed Shabbat Malchus. And there is Malchus Shabbat Chesed. And so on and so forth. That's why from seven Midas we have 49 days. How do seven become 49? Because seven times seven is 49. And each one of the seven emotions must encompass all the other seven. So for each one of the seven we need seven days to dissect and explore and refine each component of the seven emotions. The same is true as is true with the seven, it's true of all ten. That's why the spheres are sometimes counted as ten. Sometimes they'll be in numbers of a hundred. Because each one of the ten must encompass all ten. So Chachma will have Chachma Shabakhma, Bina Shabakhma, Dashabakhma, Chesed Shabakhma, Gvura Shabakhma, Tifera Shabakhma, Netzach Shabakhma, Hoyt Shabakhma, Yisait Shabakhma, Malcha Shabakhma. I'm not going to do it with all ten. You get the point? Okay. I just wanted to give one example. And um, the same is true with all the other ones. So from ten you have a hundred. So each sphere for it to be 
full and whole, must encompass and borrow components of the other ones. This is what's called hiskalalus, integration, what we call the cloud, synthesis, community. It's not just individualized faculties, but the individuals also must work together. Not just work together as individuals, but they work together by each individual, including and uh, encompassing qualities of the other. And the other, including and encompassing qualities of the former. The very practical illustration for it, and it's the illustration that Alter Rebbe brings, is in disciplining. Discipline is associated with gvura. Kindness is associated with chesed. When a parent disciplines a child, this metaphor is not mine, this metaphor that Alter Rebbe brings. I'm just explaining it in my words, but it's his metaphor. When a parent disciplines a child, at the surface, it may seem like an act of rejection. But if that's what it is, it's not gvura that is productive and meaningful. Essentially, the gvura must be coming from a place of caring and love. In other words, I can give to my child through two ways. By giving and by holding back. But the holding back must also be an act of giving. In other words, chesed shebe gvura. The gvura must have chesed in it. Even though it looks like gvura, at the surface you're saying no, but the no really contains a yes. Because I may be saying no to your request, but the reason I'm saying no to your request is because I'm thinking about the consequences and how it will affect you. And it's because I want that you should have what you need and you should grow up to be a productive or responsible or mature or accountable human being, whatever the form of the discipline takes. So it's because of, it's the no is being motivated by a yes. I'm saying yes to you in the sense that you matter to me. And therefore I say no. But of course it comes in a form of gvura. This would be chesed, shebe gvura. At the surface, it's gvura, it's discipline, it's a form of rejection. It may even be, it may include a penalty, a punishment. But essentially, it must have chesed shebe gvura. The same is true with gvura shebe gvura, teferah shebe gvura. Each sphere, each quality must include all the other ones. Or it's the other way around. Sometimes, you see, you could say it in two ways. Or you could call that gvurish abechesed. Meaning, the inner emotion is chesed, the outer emotion is gvura. Depends if you're discussing the primius, you're discussing the chitzainius, what's sometimes called chesed shebe gvura, could sometimes be called gvurish abechesed, etc. So the most On the other hand, on the other hand, you can have what's on the outside is chesed, but on the inside it's gvura. Meaning, sometimes giving is, not, is harmful to the person. So what you, what looks like an act of, of love, is really an act of rejection. Maybe not right now, but long term. Or the other way around. In this Maimer, it's actually the motivation is 
the primary one, and the expression is the aspect of it, yeah. So chesed shebegvura over here means it looks like chesed, but it's really gvura. And gvura shebechesed is, it looks like... Uh, it looks like Buddha, but it's really Chesed. Sometimes in other Maimari, we discuss this with different examples. I told you because it depends if you're focusing on the Chitzonis or the Pnimis. When we say that masculinity is associated with Chesed and femininity is associated with Gvura, what does that mean? What it means is, and here we have to have a better and more thorough understanding of what Chesed is and what Gvura is. Often, we translate chesed as love, kindness, generosity. Gvura is translated as distancing oneself, rejection, uh, ejection, uh, might, strength, discipline. Where you're actually not giving, you're holding back. It's associated with tzimtzum, with restrictions, with withholding. It's associated with din, with sternness, with judgment. A very opposite dynamic than the flow of chesed which we associate with fuzziness and, and warmth and, and closeness and bonding and generosity and everything that we associated with philanthropy and loving kindness in one form or another. The truth is, it is an accurate description, but sometimes superficial. What do we mean it's superficial? we often don't appreciate the fact that Gvura is considered in Kabbalah and in Hasidus in many ways a much deeper emotion than Chesed. What I mean by deeper, what do I mean by deeper? I don't mean that it's ten inches deeper. What I mean by deeper is it actually takes more out of the person than Chesed. That's what I mean by deeper. It's like when a person blows versus when they speak. When you speak, people speak and they can go on unfortunately for hours some people can go on for days and some people don't stop throughout the lifetime that's speaking but try blowing the shoifer right and usually after a while you have to stop and the reason is because the amount of exertion it necessitates it takes too much out of you from the Hevel Halev, the breath of the heart, the person gets exhausted, they can't do it. 10 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, it's very hard. You have to quit. Because Dibur comes from a more external place as far as the expression of energy, and therefore, you don't get exhausted so fast. We're blowing in the expression of the Zoyar quoted in Tanya, Man de Nofach, you know the end of that statement? Mitoichei Nofach. When you blow, it comes from the inside. Which is why the whole world is described as God's speech. And the only entity described as God's blowing is what? The soul. He blew. Now, Hashem has neither a nose or a mouth. So just like talking doesn't mean He spoke with His mouth, blowing doesn't mean He blew with His mouth. He doesn't blow and He doesn't talk. He's not a goof. He doesn't have a body. He's not a corporal reality. Even the word he is a difficult term to use. Even she is a difficult term. So, we interchange. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, It's interchangeable because it's not this and not this. It transcends both. Obviously, speaking is a metaphor. 
And blowing is a metaphor. And the metaphor is explained in the Tanya and in other sources that blowing represents an expression of a very deep place, source of energy, which is why it exhausts us, versus speaking. So the neshama captures much more of the divine essence, as it were, and that's why it's, uh, we say he blew the soul. Just like when we blow, it takes a lot out of us. And when we speak, it takes much less out of us, although it also takes out of us. You do get tired after talking. Not everybody, but lots of people get tired. And we should be thankful for that. If you want, I could stop talking and start blowing. But the class will end very, very fast. <laughs> Which may be a good thing. Machshava is, uh, is not talking or blowing. Machshava is beyond. Machshava, we can't stop even if we choose. Try to stop thinking. You ever tried? Yeah. yeah. And did it work? Yeah. Really? Really? Yeah. Really? Okay. There's no such a thing. Really? Try. And what, what happens? You don't think about anything? Okay, and if you're awake? When I wake up, I think. Okay, is it possible to consciously stop thinking while you're awake? Okay. Try it out, and you'll get your money back if you can do it. And you can become rich very, very fast. Because if you can help people, teach them how to stop thinking completely, people will be very happy. There's no such a thing. A person always thinks. You may think about the fact that you're not thinking, but you're thinking about that. It doesn't stop. And you sleep, you also don't. It's on a different... It's not conscious. But you're still thinking. You have a dream? Where do you think that happens? Not in your brain? There's no such a thing a person stopping to think. Speak, you could stop. Below, you have to stop. Sp think, you can't stop. So, so where is thinking? Not for now. It's an experiment. You have a whole day to experiment. Next week, let me know if you knew how to stop thinking. Uh, trust me, you can't. There's no such a thing. No human being was created that could stop thinking. It doesn't exist. If the brain, I mean if the brain is not dead. I should qualify that. No, no. When we say Gvur is deeper than Chesed, so it doesn't mean, again, deeper in uh, space, spa spatially, it means it takes more out of the person. This is where we gave the metaphor of speaking versus blowing. What, why does it take more out of a person? You would think chesed takes much more out of a person. Because chesed, I say yes. Gvura, I say no. I'm a chaya. Gvura is abstaining. Chesed is engaging. It's easier to abstain than to engage. If you ask me to do something for you and I say yes, I have to do it. If I say no, I'm free. So you would think the other way. That's sometimes true. But the truth is that Gvura in its uh, true, holy expression is much deeper than Chesed. It takes much more out of you than Chesed. And I'll give you an example. And you'll see the difference immediately. Disciplining kids makes you tired. Right. But even, even the single act of discipline is much deeper. What do I mean? Self-discipline. 
self-discipline, and also the discipline of others. So let's say now the weather changed. But if you're if you're if you're walking on a cold winter January night in Manhattan on Bowery and Forty Second Street, and you're on your way to your warmed leather seated car that has air blowing from all directions, you probably know the new cars that the Schnurrs drive. And uh, and uh, I I mean euphemism. Don't take it so seriously. It's fine. And. and you're walking there, and it's, a, it's, it's late, and it's freezing, it's, with the winds it's below zero, and there's a homeless person who comes over to you, and they barely have a blanket that covers their feet, and they're freezing, and they say, could you spare me $20? I haven't eaten anything, I haven't had a drink, I want to go into a warm place and have something to eat, hot. And you're a very nice person, and you had a good day, and you have money in your wallet, and we all know that you're nice people. And you take out your $20 and you give it to that person and they thank you profusely and you go to your car and you tell yourself as you're thinking consciously or unconsciously, I'm a nice person. And the next day at your therapist, when your therapist asks you what you think about yourself, you say, I'm a nice person. I took $20 and I gave it to a complete stranger. Okay. And I'm sure you're a nice person and let's call that an act of chesed. Then there's another human being who sees the same person and says, you know, I have a problem. I'm happy to give you the $20, but as I see in your eyes, it doesn't look like you're going to be using these $20 to buy tofu or soybeans or barley kernels or even to buy orange and grapes or kiwis or avocado salad. It seems to me that you're going to be using this money for uh, other substances. So uh, here is what I want. I would like to have a little conversation with you. And you take them into your car. And you say, here is the deal, you need rehab. Okay? I'm going to Google on my iPhone a good rehab center here in New York. Here is the number. Okay. You call them up. Get into it. Take it seriously. And then when I hear that you're serious about it, you'll phone me. And I'll send you a check to help sponsor it. When you do that, you'll let me know. In the meantime, have a wonderful evening. I hope you get your life together. The first person gave them money. The second person did not give them anything. The first person did an act of chesed. The second, an act of gvura. But I ask you, who actually thought about the person more? The first person or the second person? Of course the second person. In fact, the act of gvura was motivated because you were thinking about them and the consequences versus yourself and your spontaneous feeling, let me help the person without actually considering long-term consequence and how it will affect the other person. This example though is illustrated in many, many areas of life. There was once a mother who phoned me and she said that uh, I had a student who was engaged to her daughter and she told me that her chassan has been talking all night to, her, to the Kala. They were engaged all night to the Kala. And then the other night he spoke to her till 6 o'clock in the morning on the phone. And, um, and then she had to go to school to teach. And she tells me it's not fair. He goes to sleep at 6 o'clock. She has a job, you know. He can get up at 1. She has to work. And it's not fair. She doesn't want to tell him no because, you know, they're, they're, they're engaged. So I didn't want to tell her 
you know, let them talk now because I don't know how much they'll be talking after they get married. And uh, this is basically the time that they talk. Let them talk it out, and uh, hopefully, you'll, but that was uh, that was also humorous. I mean, I don't know, humorous or not humorous, but uh, it was an attempt. So I told her, uh, have him ask ask your daughter or him to call me whenever I'll talk to him. Okay, so he phoned me. The mother-in-law was already getting involved. So I asked him, I asked him, uh, <laughs> so I apologized to him, I said, you know, the, the Schwieger called me, but that's how it works. Mothers are protective of their daughters. He was an intelligent person. He is an intelligent person. So uh, I asked him what's going on. She asked me if I could talk to you, so I'll talk to you. So he tells me she's right. I felt bad. So I said, so why do you have to talk all night? So he tells me, because I love the girl. <laughs> I love the girl. So you see, one of the women just said, oh, oh. it's very mushy, right? And I trust him. He's a good guy. I trust him. That's called chesed. He loves the girl, but he wasn't thinking about the girl. <laughs> He's having a good time. He loves. And it's probably genuine love. I'm not saying, or say, I don't know, but I'm not suggesting it's, in, it's temporary infatuation. It may be very real chesed. But to say it's time to hang up now and separate and create borders represents not the absence of love, but actually a deeper relationship in which you consider not only your own emotion and the attra your attraction to the other person, but rather you consider the other person as an independent human being. So there is much more respect in Gvura than in Chesed. There is much more empowerment in Gvura than in Chesed. There is much more focusing not on my attraction to this person, but on the needs of the person. So which takes more out of the person? In many ways, Gvura is harder and deeper. And this is the meaning of a very difficult Mishnah. In Masechta Eidiyos, in Tractate Eidiyos, the Mishnah tells a story that there was Akavia ben Mahalo, one of the great sages, and he was dying, he was on his deathbed. And his son approached him. And his son said, Father, his father was a great sage, mentioned in Pirkei Ovis, Akavia ben Mahalil Oimer. And he says, Father, before you pass away, Pekoid alai lachavei recha. Which means... Give a tzavah, give a last, what we call final will and testament to your friends about me. Basically, in simple English, call in your friends and say, you know, my son is the genius of the millennium. And treat him, treat him nicely. What we call protectia. A little protectia. You're not going to be here. You're on the top. You know, get me into a good position. In the base medrash, whatever it is. And the father, astoundingly, tells his son on his deathbed, no. He refuses. So his son says, Father, have you found uh, iniquity in me that you refuse to help me out? And the father says, no, I've not found iniquity in you. And one reads the story and is taken aback. How cold can a father be? How detached, how aloof, how careless. Mela, you're alive, fine. But your last moments, he's asking you for a favor. He's asking you 
because he's not going to have you. He's asking you to give him a little protection. Call in your friends and say, My son, ah, give him the best chavrusa, give him the best place in yeshiva, give him the best shidduch. What's the big deal? And the father responds to him and he says four words. And those are the words he tests him before his passing. And he says, Ma'asecha yikarvucha o ma'asecha yirachakucha. Which means, your deeds will bring you closer and your deeds will cause you to become distant. And he passes away. What does this mean? Because he knew, I would suggest, he was not cold at all. Because he knew that he will not be there for his son physically, he asked himself, what's the greatest gift I can give my child? The greatest gift he can give his child is the belief that he can become the author of his own biography. He can become the author of his own biography. He is not a victim of circumstances. He empowered him to tell him and told him, Your deeds have the power to determine where you will be in life. His father could have called in his friends and offered protection. But forever the boy would have known who I am is not because of me. It's due to my father's charm, charisma, saintliness, brilliance, genius, holiness, etc. And his father said, what I can do for you, what I have to do for you is give you the empowerment and the belief that this is a classic case of Gvura which is in a many ways a deeper form of love than the love of Chesed. And this is why we associate masculinity with Chesed and femininity with Gvura. Because often masculine kindness can be a little detached. It can be somewhat divorced from long-term ramifications and consequences. Femininity by nature is much more attached and concerned with details and focuses in and feels the consequences of any reality in a very vivid fashion. It's easier usually to hurt a woman in a relationship than it is to hurt a man in a relationship because she's more invested in the relationship. She's, it's harder for her to be detached, to make believe she doesn't care, um, not to feel, to have that stone look on the face. I mean, you'll ask a man, you can try this with your husband, what are you feeling? And the most common response will be, nothing. I don't know. Now, you don't believe him because you don't know what that means. But I'm telling you, he's actually saying the truth for once. He's actually being honest. When he says nothing, he means it. Men don't feel much. Trust me, they don't feel much. I mean, they feel, they know the taste of falafel. They know, they feel a few things. But they don't feel much. Huh? They don't feel much. Yeah. When they say, I don't know, it actually, they're honest. I don't know what I'm feeling. You'll say, you look stressed. The poor guy goes crazy. 
He doesn't know what you want from him. Of course he's stressed. He's always stressed. He doesn't feel stressed. He is stressed. He was born stressed. He'll die stressed. There's no feeling. You got to do what you got to do. Let me just go to my cave and text messages and check my email and read my newspaper and leave me alone. You know? You'll ask a woman how you're feeling. And Baruch Hashem. She could read you off Megillus Estesha, Hashirim, Eicha, Kayalas, Kaloch, Abdalat, Sifri, Kaidish. There's Baruch Hashem a lot going on at any given moment, including a feeling about the question, how are you feeling? That itself generates an emotion. Now, Rasha, are you going to sit here and let him say that? <laughs> so Floyd was yeah, a man by mistake. That's true. Masculinity and femininity are integrated. It's scholarless. So chesed and gvura doesn't mean chesed is loving and gvura is negative. There could be a gvura that's negative. There could be a gvura of detachment. I discipline because I don't care. I say no because I don't care. But really, holy gvura is deeper than chesed. I care too much. And because I care too much, I have to create distance. If you look in Chumash, Sarah rejects Yishmael. Avraham keeps Yishma, wants to keep Yishmael in the house. Rivka rejects Esau getting the brachas. Yitzchak wants to give Esau the brachas. Is it that Sarah and Rivka were associated with Gvura and it meant that they don't care and Avraham and Yitzchak cared? That would not be an accurate and honest interpretation. It rather means that Sarah saw the long-term vision of what will occur if Yishmael remains in the house. So it's like the person who says, let's bring in our enemies into our territories. Let's give our territories to enemies, which is an act of chesed, and that will foster peace. But what happens if you look one day ahead, or one year ahead, allowing Yishmael into the domain of Yitzchak, creates misery not just for Yitzchak but even for Yishmael so here Gvura becomes a deeper form of love and hence masculinity and femininity are often associated with Chesed and Gvura how do they unite? how do they combine? so the Alter Rebbe says for intimacy to happen what is intimacy? Intimacy means oneness. The only way the two can become one is when the man identifies the woman in himself and the woman identifies the masculine in herself. And in intimacy, what the man gives, the seed, Alter Rebbe says, He's giving the gvura aspect of his chesed. And what the woman gives is the chesed aspect of her gvura. And therefore, they can become one. Fire and water can't become one. But if fire would contain an aspect of water, and water would contain an aspect of fire, which they don't, on the level that we relate to. There's higher levels where they do. Then they could unite. Shamayim is Eishan Mayim. So if the man is Chesed and the woman is Gvura, you have fire and water. Fire is Gvura, water is Chesed. Only with a pot can they coexist. But a pot is not intimate. A pot means there's a Mechitza. 
a mechitza is appropriate between fire and water. You need a mechitza. That's why we have a mechitza right here between fire and water. That's why you have a mechitza right here. But that's to protect the boundaries between fire and water because when you mix the two, you don't help any of them. You say you're making peace between them, you're not making peace. Either the fire will, ex- will, uh, will dry the water or the water will extinguish the fire. They can't coexist individually and retain their identities respectfully. When you have genders mingling in an, in, in a, without boundaries, so it's not that you have deeper unity, it's that you actually undermine the identity of each. Because for fire to remain fire, it has to have its space. And for water to remain water, it has to have its space. And when there's a pot in between, they can help each other. The fire heats the water, and the water can cook up the raw dish. The water can channel the warmth and cook the meat or the potato, whatever you're cooking. And that's really the concept of gender boundaries and relationships. When there's complete breakdown of boundaries and walls, it doesn't help not the men, and it doesn't help the women, even if at the surface it looks like there's complete unity and synchronization and peace. Because it's coming from a primitive and immature understanding of femininity and masculinity, making believe that it's the same thing, which is in itself very respectful, but very disrespectful both to men and women. Assuming any two people are the same means that you're ignoring reality, certainly genders. But that's not intimacy. The Gemara says, So how does this happen? So the Alter Rebbe says, He must release, what he releases is the Gvura aspect of his Chesed. So even though he's Chesed, but what came out was the gvura of his chesed. She's gvura, but what came out is the chesed of her gvura. The gvura of his chesed and the chesed of her gvura can unite. Because the gvura of his chesed is still chesed, but it's the gvura aspect. The chesed of her gvura is still gvura, but it's the chesed aspect. So the gvura of his chesed and the chesed of her gvura this is where the two meet. In other words, where he identifies and finds the femininity within him, and she identifies and finds the masculinity within herself, this is where intimacy can happen, and this is where the child can be created. Why can the child be created? Because the child is a unification of both forces. How can both forces unite? It's by him giving out the chesed, the gvura of the chesed, and she who's gvura gives out the chesed of the gvura, and therefore they can unite. But if he would give chesed shebe chesed, and she would give gvura shebe gvura, there's no way they can become one, because it's two opposites. So if he would retain the full masculine purity of chesed, and she would retain the full feminine purity of gvura, then they can't mix. You have to still have a mechitza, you have to have a separation. But between a husband and a wife, you don't want a mechitza. In, in, with others, you want a mechitza. But you know, husband, if you have a mechitza, it's not a marriage. <laughs> what what givura is he giving? Huh? What givura is he giving from this So that's the secret that his seed captures an energy of givura in chesed. And her flow, the egg, and so forth, 
We're talking about the physical component and also the spiritual component. Every physical component is a reflection of the spiritual. Captures and represents chesed of gvura. And here is where the two can meet. The gvura of his chesed and the chesed of her gvura. So it's already not chesed in its full intensity. The gvura aspect of chesed, so it's already closer to the feminine. Plus, her gvura is not in its full intensity. It's chesed, so it's already closer to the masculine. So this is where the two come together. The femininity and the masculinity connects to the masculinity in the femininity. It's true emotionally, and therefore it's also true biologically and spiritually. According to this, we understand what Chazal say, Isha, When the woman generates the flow first, so she gives birth to a male. But when he generates the flow first, then she gives birth to a female. Why? Because when Isha Mazras Tchila, what's contained in the, that Mazras? Chesed or Gvura? Chesed. Because it's her Chesed Shabigvura. So the product is Zachar. When he's Mazriat Tchila, what's in that Mazria? Gvura or Chesed? Gvura. So it's Yeladis Nekeva. It's actually in the cave. Because that's the magic of intimacy is that he identified, so to speak, the feminine in himself. And that's what his seed captures. So therefore, the product is in the cave. The other way, she identified and expresses the masculine within herself, the gvur, the chesed, and therefore, it's in the cave. So, ish mazriat chila, I'm sorry, therefore it's zacher. So, ish mazriat chila yeladis nekeva. And that's why he said, it's not like the philosophers who said, So the woman's there is on the top, so therefore it prevails. Or so his is second on the top, so therefore he says, no. It's directly. Because he was Mazriyat Chila. The predominant energy is Gvura, so therefore it's an Akeva. If she's Mazriyat Chila, the first initiation, the Kabbalah's Ponim, is her energy, which is Chesed, because that's how intimacy happens. And therefore, when Isha Mazra's Tchila, it's actually Yelad Zohar. Kabbalistically, Zohar is associated with the name Ma. Nekev is associated with the name Ban. In Shem Hava, Yud Kevavke, there's four ways of writing it out fully. The Yud, the He, the Vav, He, which make up four names, Ma, Ban, Sag, and Av. 45, 52, 63, and 72. It's four ways of writing out Yud, Hey, Vav, Hey fully. And that makes four names. Masculinity is associated with what's called Shem Ma. Femininity is associated with Shem Ban. Ma encompasses Ban. Ban encompasses Ma. The male child comes from Ma, identifying the Ban in itself and releasing the Ban. And that's why Yeladis Nekeva, the woman whose Ban... Her intimacy expresses in her identifying the ma in the ban, the masculinity and the femininity, and therefore yeleta zachar. So chazal mean it literally. It's the isha mazras tchila that has in it the force of the zachar predominantly, and conversely, ish mazria tchila yeleta znekeva because it has predominantly the force of the zachar.
Now in a person's life, just as it's true if masculinity and femininity, literally a father, a mother, a husband and a wife, it's true also in a relationship with a person, of a person with himself or herself, and a relationship between one person and another person, not only in terms of a marriage, but all forms of relationships which are all connected to each other because the general principles of relationship are similar even though in every way, in every, in all, in, I shouldn't say they're similar. There are general principles that govern all relationships even though there's always drastic and dramatic essential differences based on the context of the relationship. You can't compare spouses to children, although sometimes they're very similar, but uh, they should not be similar. Your relationship with your parents is not your relationship with your kids. Your relationship with your friends is not your relationship with your children. Your relationship with your employer or employees is not the relationship with your best friends and so forth. But nonetheless, the dynamics of relationships are there in all these types of relationships. And therefore, various principles of one can be applied and explained to the other. We have, for example, in businesses, today there's a very big uh, branch of study and practice, and there's actually a lot of money in it too, called conflict resolution. Conflict resolution is, it was once a teacher who asked the students, he was teaching them English, he was teaching them a history of wars. So he asked the students, a professor, a teacher, said, does anybody know the difference, the definition in the dictionary, the difference between a battle and an engagement? So one student says, yeah, one is before the wedding and one is after the wedding. Um, conflict resolution is a very necessary quality. You have it in businesses constantly, partners, investors, uh, employers, employees, of course marriage, communities, whatever the situation is, ain't they say in Shavas, people have different opinions, people have different interests, more than different opinions, and therefore there's conflict, there's disharmony, constantly. Sometimes it's intentional, sometimes it's unintentional, sometimes it's coming from a vicious place, often it's not coming from a vicious place, it's coming from a place of ignorance or simply a lack of understanding or a lack of sensitivity or who knows. I mean, there can be, there can be uh, endless reasons for conflict. And uh, in halacha, and today it became a very popular concept, there's two ways of resolving a conflict. One is known as din and one is known as pshara. And when you come to a din taita, they offer both. Pshara means compromise. And din means verdict, judgment. The difference is, one focuses on who's right and who's wrong. You come to me and you say, I'm uh, a landlord, I'm the landlord of the house, you haven't paid rent in six months. And I say, there's a leak here, there's a leak there, there's a leak there. I called you 190 times to fix the leaks. You didn't fix it. You're responsible for the air conditioning, you didn't fix it. You're responsible for the heater, you didn't fix it. I had to bring in the plumber, I had to fix everything, and it matches the months of rent. I don't pay your rent. No, you have two sides. How do you know who's right? So you have to know what the agreement was, what the facts were, right? And so on and so forth. What the contract was, and what if there was no contract? What if there was no contract? Whose responsibility is it to fix the air conditioning? These, these, these cases happen every single day. Every day. You send your child to school, he doesn't, you, gave, uh, you, gave, you gave money for the whole year, you take out the child in the middle of school, they say, the money is ours. You say, no, I paid for six months, give me the rest of the money. Who's right? They say, you pay, you pay for the year. The fact you decided to take out your child, 
It's not our problem. We already used up the money. We used up the money. You say, what do you mean? I'm paying for the time in school. So if there's a contract in the beginning that says you give the money, fine. So it's not a debate. What if there's no? I'm giving you examples of daily daily things that happen in every Bezdin and every Dintaira, and it's not fun to deal with these things. Sometimes people are mentioned, but somebody once said, a mensch is not a mensch, and a moldos eichnisht. A human being is only a human being, and sometimes he's not even that. That's what Moshe Rubin from Montreal, Zechrein of Rachi, used to say. A mensch is not a mensch, and a moldos eichnisht. One approach is din. Din is, somebody is right, and somebody is wrong. And we'll figure it out. And we come back, we examine, we review, we look at the sources, we study, we scrutinize, we ask questions, and then I say, the landlord is right, the renter has to pay him six months, or the other way, the landlord is wrong, and the renter can go home and doesn't have to pay him a thing. Right? Okay. That's one way. Another way is apshara. Pshara means I'm not looking who's right and who's wrong. I'm not looking who's right and wrong. You may be right, you may be wrong, you both be right. Usually you're both wrong. <laughs> or you're both right. But I'm not looking for it. I'm looking to come with a compromise that will make both of you happy. In many ways it's not idealistic. Not idealistic. It's like who's right and who's wrong. So Gemara has a question. Do we offer compromise? To litigants, or do we say, Yaakov Hadina Sahar, let Halacha bend the mountain? One shit is, we don't offer compromise. Halacha Lamaisi, you always offer Apshara. What's the advantage in Apshara? It may not be idealistic, but it's practical, <laughs> it's utilitarian. Instead of both people coming out and one person feeling like the winner and the other one like the loser, they both come out feeling like losers. No, they both come out feeling like winners. Then there's something even deeper. And this is called mediation. And this has to do with deeper types of conflicts. And that is, often the arguments are not really the arguments. There are what people say, and there are what people feel. Often, you can address what they're saying, but you're ignoring what they're feeling. When two people come with an argument, the manifestation of the argument is not really the issue. It's usually a certain feeling or emotion was hurt or compromised. It may, for me, symbolize an act of abuse or control. It's not the particular issue. That's just the smokescreen. That's just a symptom. And great mediators know how to zoom into that and address the pnimiyazdika, core issues, which will automatically often resolve Lots of the practical differences, lots of the practical conferences, uh, uh, conflict. But for this you have to have understanding, not only what people are saying, but of what they're not saying. You have to show that in a deep place they may not have a conflict. Because although practically this one argues this, this one argues that, but there's a level of interests where you have interests, you have interests, they're both fine interests, and perhaps they can both be met if we work out issues. What is the concept of this model? The concept of this model is, instead of treating the people as two separate people, yeah, instead of seeing them as two separate people, you have to be able to go deeper and see what this mimer calls the hiskalulus, the integration, 
And what do we mean by the integration? Every single person has certain needs, every single person has certain interests. And there are places in which our needs and interests are very, very similar, although we're different. And you can identify yeah, this person and the other person, and this person and the other person. In other words, if I can show you yeah, that you should appreciate what the other person needs, and show them to be able to appreciate what this person needs, and then very, very often you could resolve lots of disputes. It takes a, a, a thorough and profound understanding. It can be impulsive. But this is the concept of, of Iskalalus. When you talk about husbands and wives, often they're both fine people. If you'll catch each of them in a vulnerable state, they're very nice people. The problem is they don't really understand each other. And they can't. They have different paradigms. Everyone comes to the world from a different place. They had different homes, different upbringings. They're different people. They have different psyches. They have different stresses. They don't know about each other. He doesn't know about her. She doesn't know about him. So they're arguing about, uh, I told you to bring home the wine. You didn't bring home the wine. Uh, you're never home on time. That, that's not the argument. That's the expression of it. So the, the big conflict may be about milk, about money, about the summer, about the kids, about the shul, about the school. Who knows? About the vacation. Right? But that's the specific manifestation of it. The core issue is, do you even understand each other? Do you know the world of the other person? Or to put it in more abstract language, can you identify in yourself the him? And can you identify in yourself the her? How do you understand the other person? How could you? This is what the Mimer is saying. The masculine must identify the feminine within himself. And the feminine must identify the masculine within herself. And when they can both do that, that's the key where there can be intimacy. Intimacy as an into me see. But it's not just into me see. When you see into me, how do you see into me? How do I see into you? So I have to be able to look into myself and find the you in me. Right? That's how I can see the you. Because I am not you. You are not me. And this is a uh, journey of an exciting and adventurous and, and humbling journey of one truly spending time to learn about the other person by learning about themselves. It's not just learning about the other person as a discipline. Okay, let me teach you about who I am. That's, again, that's dogma. That doesn't create a relationship. It's important, these are my needs. But to create intimacy, to create a child that unites both forces, you know, a therapist can tell you, a rabbi can tell you, okay, this is his needs, these are her needs, follow the rules, right? It's like the guy, a woman told me that a guy comes home and... Uh, he got from a therapist a paper of list what he has to do. So he takes it out and he says, So how was your day? <laughs> right? I was once in a particular camp that was notorious for breaking every law in the book as far as what a camp needs, you know, fire hazard securities. I'm not going to mention names, 
But this is the good old days when a lot of our schools and camps didn't mamish, uh, adhere to the highest levels of, uh, of rules. Today it's already a different world. So, uh, so, uh, so it was very interesting. The first week we would be expelled from camp and come back. And, and uh, it, was, it was an interesting reality there. It was very accepted then. Because you have to remember, for a few decades, anything less than the Holocaust was already, you can't complain about. You know? Today, we're a little spoiled. You know, people would say, ah, I didn't eat for three days. Well, you don't have butter? I mean, that's your problem. We didn't eat for three days. <laughs> and there was a point to it, too. There was a point to it. Today, we're a little spoiled. So, so one, of the ma- one of the managers of camp... Uh, was had to give us the rules of what we're allowed to do, what we're not allowed to do. Uh, a Lubavitcher fellow, but very, uh, as they say in English, square. You know, it's a square, extremely square. See, so described to us in the basketball field in camp, there were tires. So one of the things that kids like to do, especially when they're bored, is you take a tire and you roll it. I somebody may be walking. That's his problem. Who asked him to walk? He should fly. The main thing is you have to roll the tire and let him watch, right? Like somebody here, Rosh Hashanah, screamed, can you please take your elbow out of my hips? They said, no, you take your hips out of my elbow, right? So you walk out of the space of, my, uh, of the path of my tire. So he, gave, uh, he gathered us all together. We were counselors, or campers, or kedengshiners. And he gave us a speech about how he watched, how a boy took a tire and rolled it. And... It went, and it, what could have happened? He described Mamish, a third world war could, could have broken. I'll never forget. This became our comedy for the whole summer because it was the first day of camp. He says, I saw that. I saw that. Boys! And then he looked at the paper, looked up. I'm shocked. <laughs> so that became the line of the decade in camp. Anybody from my year knew, boys, he looked at the paper, I'm shocked. And somebody said, how shocked are you? So he looked down at the paper, because it didn't say in the paper, he forgot to write how shocked he is. So when a marriage works that way, you know, I, uh, how was your day? It's not really going to happen. It has to, I mean, it's fine, it's a, it's a, it's a starter for men, it's a good thing. But, uh, but what you need is identification. The only way you can identify is by finding the other person in yourself. When you find the other person in yourself, then you can appreciate where the other person is coming from. And conversely, does this mean that you find the other person in yourself so you cease to be you? No. There's Ish and there's Isha. But where is the child created? What is the child? The child is the personification of unity. The child is created from the humility that comes from man creating space for the other and woman creating space for the other. Have a wonderful day. Huh? You can ask, you can ask. I used it as a euphemism. A relationship with yourself just means understanding the conflicting motives in yourself.